All right, the goal tonight, the goal. I don't know if we will, but we're going to try. We're going to try to conclude our look at dispensationalism. Now, remember the entire goal here was, I called this Dispensationalism 101. This wasn't supposed to cover every issue pertaining to the subject. We could look at all the different forms of dispensationalism. There's a lot we could do with it. But to just try to cover some of the basics that we have looked at just briefly. The main emphasis that I have tried to put forth over and over in this entire study has been the significance of how a theological system becomes one's hermeneutic and how that is very detrimental and how we try to get, try to get around that. At the same time, trying to learn a theological system known as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism breaks the Bible into how many dispensations? Seven, all right? And, though, well, I won't ask you to repeat those seven dispensations, but hopefully you have a pretty good idea of them, right? Now, this is what we can say. By breaking them down into seven dispensations, simply put, they, real, they are acknowledging that there are different, I think this is fair to say, seven different time periods, right? In which God interacted, acted with man, upon man, in a specific way that's different than the way uh, that came in a separate dispensation, okay? And then, of course, Schofield emphasized what? There's a testing in each one of them. Now, from a, just a very basic, basic, basic thinking here, right? Before we ever, whether we agree or disagree with dispensationalism, can we agree with this? God's interaction and everything that happened in the garden, right? From the creation of man, to their being expelled from the garden, can we all agree that everything that happens in there, we, cannot, we can't teach things that happened after really based on what's going on there because nothing is the same, right? What, what, what's the difference between Adam and Eve and us? Well, the, well they were sinless. They had a sin, let's start with that. They didn't have a sinful nature. Everyone after... Does. They literally walked with God. God walked in the garden with them. He seemed to speak directly to them. All right. That's radically different than when it comes after, right? Now, what comes after is then you have a good portion of Genesis. Whenever anyone deals with Genesis, what's the big question in dealing with Genesis, say from after the fall, say from chapter 4? following. What is one of the big theological hermeneutical difficulties with interpreting the book of Genesis? Well, we have a tendency to judge the people in Genesis on the basis of what? The law that comes way after. And remember, we've had this, we've, we've brought this question up so many times, right? Because when we, when people preach, they'll be like, well, look what Abraham did. Look what he did. That's sinful. According to who? But then in other situations in Genesis, we don't do that, right? Because we start going, well, wait a minute. Cain, and where did Cain find a wife? And immediately we think he married whom? A sister. Later on, we say that that's wrong. But we say that he, he wasn't under that law because the law wasn't written yet. But then later on, we'll judge other people and you're like, but the law hasn't been given yet. So then, like, we, we, we know we struggle with this. But immediately when you do that, what are you, what are you doing? You're distinguishing time, right? You're distinguishing that this time is different than that time, right? So 
immediately we know that there's at least some, you can see why dispensationalism, at least in its most generic concept, that there are times that seem to be different than previous times. We can agree, right? We, for, for example, now I know charismatics would disagree with us, but we don't believe God is giving revelation to us. He's not speaking to us. He's not doing that. If we don't believe that, then that means we believe that there is a different time, right? Something has changed. So immediately, whenever we, that, that's all dispensational is at its basic core, right? So we looked at those different times, how that works out. We understand, but we covered that. We also, we threw in for just extra, right? It didn't cost you any extra. We also looked at the covenants. How many covenants? Eight. And why did we look at the covenants? In many cases, they're very connected, all right? So we looked at it. And those covenants, in a a roundabout way, they kind of mark off the same kind of concept, right? Period of time, which this covenant was... And effect, and whether it was conditional or unconditional, or whether it's all of those issues, you still know that there's this subject of time. So that's kind of what we've done. There's a lot more we could, could we review, but tonight here is the que- the question. Here is the main question that we're going to try to answer tonight, right? And we're going to answer it really quick, and then we're going to do some history. All right. Here is the question. All right. Does the timing? of when a theological system is formed have any impact on whether we should consider it to be true or false? Does the timing of when a theological system is formed or when it arises, does that have any impact on us saying, well, it's true or it's false? Okay? Well, we're not, we're, we're, I'm just saying in general, but yeah, obviously it's going to apply to dispensationalism. Yes. Okay. Now, th- this is important because as non-Catholics, our answer should be an affirmative, it should be a, a declarative. Absolutely not. We don't care when it's formed. It could be formed tomorrow. We don't care. Why, why, would, we, why would that be our our, our, our way of thinking as a non-Catholic. Well, y'all are all ready to say? <laughs> uh, revelation is revealed, and that's, I mean, things are revealed, uh, that's a good possibility, or uh, details. Uh, well, because what we claim is that what's the authority? So we don't care when the system arises. What we care is, is it, does it flow from the scriptures? Now, one could argue, well, why hadn't anyone seen it? One can make that argument. But the point is, we as non-Catholics, our whole argument, remember, that's the whole argument. The whole argument of the non-Catholic is, I don't care about church history. I don't care about the councils. I don't care about the church fathers. They have no authority over me. I mean, that's our big thing, right? That's our big thing. We, I, mean, what did the, I mean, whether you want to admit it or not, if you're not a Catholic, what have you done to that entire history? You spit in its face and you said, you're wrong. You're all wrong. You're, I don't care if you're an Augustine, an Irenaeus. I don't care who you are. Calvin, Zwingli, I don't care anybody. It's me and my Bible. And we say, well, that's a little hyper- hyperbole. No, it's not. That's literally how we operate. It's literally how we operate. So it, by, from our argument is that, no, 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 I don't care when the system started. 
I care what's here. Now, if you believe that church history and those who were a part of it and those who spoke maintain some type of authority, well, then it would be of great significance when a system is formed, right? Because if it's formed by those whom you assign some authority to, then you would be bound to it. For example, in the Catholic Church, who's a famous doctor of the Catholic Church? Starts with an A. Well, let's go to Augustine. Let's start with Augustine, right? Okay? And then you could go to Thomas Aquinas. You could go to some of these others. And, well, those are either considered the fathers of the church or a doctor in the church. They hold some form of authority. So if a system is found in their writing, oh, well, that can mean what? We may, may be bound to it in some way, shape, or form. If a council declared something, and if you say that council was authoritative, then you are bound to it. If you go back to those councils and they don't mention it, or they reject a certain idea, then you are bound to reject it. Does that make sense? If you reject that authority, then it doesn't matter. But this is a, ma- this is a major issue, all right? Um, in fact, this, this plays out in really two ways. I, I can give you just two basic examples. What's the number one argument for infant baptism? What's the number one argument for infant baptism? It was the historical practice of the early church. Everyone did it. Right? That's the, they, they sprinkled and it was infant baptism. That's always the argument. That was the historical, consistent teaching of the early church. So you can't come along as Anabaptists in the 1600s, 1500s, 1700s and like, we're not baptizing babies. We're doing it by immersion. And if you've been baptized as a baby, you have to be rebaptized. We were called the rebaptizers, right? And some of and they, some of the reformers wanted us dead. They're like the historical practice was to baptize babies. And what was the argument? We don't care what the historical practice was. Show us in the scriptures. Okay? Another argument would be the early church was clearly all millennial. They were not premillennial, did not believe in a rapture, did not believe in a millennial kingdom. Clearly, that was the, the teaching of the early church. They always make that argument. And we would and the argument from the other side would be, we don't care what the early church was. In fact, we would argue, they would argue they held to that because they were looking at the world instead of looking at the scripture. And they could not see in Israel, so they had to formulate a system that replaced Israel with the church because they could see the church. Right? On and on and on and on and on this goes. So I, but I mean, I, look, on one hand, there's a part of me that says we should, we should go to church history and see what they thought. But then when you really break it down into, into our, and our system, it doesn't work. If I try to drag church history over into our system, and I'm like, look, here's what church history said, church history said. What will people in the pew do in a Protestant church? Who cares? I don't care. I mean, even if, even if I show in Scripture, it doesn't matter even if I show in Scripture. But the bottom line is, they're like, you're wrong. I'm going to go to another church that teaches what I want. Like, it doesn't matter. You can have, have 5,000 documents from church history. Nobody cares. So it's, if we can't even get people to agree on Scripture, there's no point in bringing in the early church. 
It's just no point. So I know we don't, you may, may make you uncomfortable to say that, but that's just the reality. Well, this is the, the argument about this. So this really is the system. Does the timing matter? Does the timing matter? Some people say yes, some people say no. No, I think we would all be, a, I think we would all at least admit if someone comes up with a new system tomorrow, I think we would all be a little bit hesitant. But in reality, does it matter? No, in reality, it doesn't matter. Because they were out, what, what should be the question? Not that you formed it 15 minutes ago inside your study, but where did it arise from? Where, where, where are the scriptures, okay? So just keep that in mind, because as we go into this, we're going to utilize, I'm going to be utilizing a couple of resources, and I'm going to try to go through this quick. You're, uh, now, I know um, there's going to be names here. There's going to be dates. I'm just going to try to give you some of the basics. I'm going to try to skip through some of this, because we're going to trace it. What we're, we're going to trace it in two different ways. We're going to, we'll look at more of the modern history, and we'll look at the ancient history. Now, this, this book starts off, and uh, this is a chapter called The Origins of Dispensationalism, all right? And they start this chapter out this way. A typical statement about dispensationalism goes like this. Dispensationalism was formulated by one of the 19th century separatist movements, the Plymouth Brethren. That's a typical statement when people talk about dispensationalism, right? It was formulated by one of the 19th century separatist movements, the Plymouth Brethren. Now, what are they emphasizing there? 19th century, and they want to emphasize separatist movement because they're going to be like, this was a minority, not the consensus of the church. So, so, and they say immediately, this is a prejudicial statement. So in other words, they, they acknowledge when someone makes that kind of statement, they're doing so in a prejudicial way. Because they don't like dispensationalism, so they're going to immediately make that accusation. And they say it's a, that this implies two charges. Number one, since dispensationalism is recent, it is therefore unorthodox. And that's the normal argument. If I can prove to you that your view is more recent than this view, then the recent one is immediately seen to be wrong. And this happens all the time. This happens anytime people get into an argument about anything. It's just like, well, there everyone wants to say the early church said, the early church said, and we, but we, we, we took care of this in a previous study, did we not? When we looked at baptism in the early church, what did we find when we went back to the early church? Was some of that stuff whacked completely out? Not only did how they handled the text, remember some of that craziness, right? Because I guess water splashed on them. That was baptism. Remember some of that nonsense, right? Baptizing people in the nude, all of the craziness, right? Well, guess what? If that's what the early church taught, see, once you establish that as your logical argument, then all you have to do is go back to the early church, try to figure out what the early church taught, and then you're bound by it. But when people talk about it, do they ever bound themselves to it? No. They, they, they will say, well, you've got to go with the early church until you pull out something from the early church they don't like. And as soon as you pull out something from the early church they don't like, then the early church all of a sudden loses its authority. 
right? So, in fact, when I, I was arguing with those that Saturday, I got set up by that group of Presbyterians, and which to this day I'm still ticked off by, that whole way that went down. When I tried to point that out, they were like, the early church. I'm like, so you agree with everything in the early church? They're like, I, then this story is their exact statement. I agree with, we agree with the early church whenever they were right. So the early church really doesn't have authority. So really, who's making the decision in all of that? The per- like, you cannot see it. Like, how do those words come out of your mouth when you don't realize, well, the, re- the, re- the reality is I'm God and I get to make the determination, right? And that's what people always do with the early church, right? You go back, find a quote. If you agree, agree with Augustine, Augustine's great. When you don't agree with Augustine, well, then what's the point of going to Augustine? Right? What's the point? I mean, what, what's always the joke about Augustine? The father of Roman Catholicism and the father of Calvinism. Okay, well, what do you do with that, right? Calvinists love to quote Augustine. But guess what? Anything that sounds like Roman Catholicism, we throw out. So then what's the point of quoting him? You quote him when he agrees with your system. When he's right, when you determine he's right. I mean, that's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. The things sometimes Christians say. But so this number one, it's, it's the argument is that since dispensationalism is recent, it is therefore unorthodox. Number two, it was born out of a separatist movement and it is therefore to be shunned. All right. So in other words, they're making two arguments when they make a statement like that. It's a prejudicial statement. Trying to tell you what, why would you want to be a dispensationalist? It didn't start until, you know, the 1900s or 1800s, whenever they want to give the official date. And it was a separatist movement. Why would you want to follow that? I don't care when, where, who. What I care is, is it scriptural? Now, if I do care about the date and who, then guess what I'm doing? Inadvertently, I'm assigning authority to those individuals. And once I assign authority to those individuals, then I have to say, does their authority match scripture? You say, well, scripture judges them. Well, then if scripture judges them, then it doesn't matter who they are, does it? See, then it just turns into a big circular argument here. All right. They say, they go on to say, and and again, what they're trying to do is how people attack dispensationalism. If the poor misguided souls who believe in dispensationalism only knew its true origin, they would turn from its teaching like the plague. They're like, that's how people act. And and then they go on to say, if that sounds a little too uh, sarcastic, listen to a statement by Daniel Fuller, right? So so they're like, they, they, they say it like, hey, and people could go, oh, that's a little bit of hyperbole. And then now he's going to quote someone who says the following. Are you ready? Ignorance is bliss. And it may well be that this popularity of dispensationalism would not be so great if the adherents of this system knew the historical background of what they teach. Few indeed realize that the teaching of Schaefer came from Schofield, uh, who came from Schofield, who in turn got it through the writings of Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. So anyone who criticizes it, they're like, the reason people are, no, what's the implication? You're a dispensationalist because you are ignorant. Because you're ignorant. 
because we know church history. You don't. And I've had that argument now multiple times when, when people try to argue with me about infant baptism. I'm always, it's always told that you're ignorant, you don't know church history, or you've never read Calvin's Institutes. And all of that ticks me off so much because I've definitely read Calvin's Institutes. I'm definitely a student of church history. The th- thing is, if I claim that the Bible's the authority, I mean, that's the same argument Catholics make. It's the, the Catholics always make, you guys are ignorant of church history. And if you knew church history, well, no, it's not about it. You can know it. It's the issue is, is it a, an authoritative answer or declaration that I have, I'm binded to. And we, we, we claim, look, the minute the Protestant Reformation happened, what, remember we always talk about the unintended consequences? I know people don't like to describe it this way, but we spit in the face of church history. We're like, we don't care. We don't care. And you say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Yes, it's true. Because what we do is we pick the church history that agrees with us and anything that seems to be contradictory, we just reject. And when you go back to some of the early church fathers, sometimes you find things you're like, man, that sounds very Catholic or that sounds like I'm supposed to submit to the bishop or that sounds like possibly transubstantiation or what is going on here? Well, we just do what? We just ignore it and say, well, they were wrong. Well, then... If they were wrong there, then why do you take anything they say right as being over here? What's The only source that we can go to that we can never say is wrong is what? Scriptures. Now, we could be wrong, but we argue that the scriptures can never be wrong. They go on, a further implication in a statement like Fuller's is that dispensationalism is obviously man-made and a person would never arrive at such ideas from his own personal Bible study. The ideas came from Darby. Schofield and Chafer, and certainly not from the Bible. All right? So they're saying that that's what, how people react to it, that they immediately will reject it for that. I just want you to just take away, if you don't get anything else tonight, let's just take away this. That charge is irrelevant to us. All right? And, it, and it's not about because I'm trying to defend dispensationalism. I'm not even trying to defend dispensationalism. What I'm trying to defend is the date of a system cannot determine its truth because because ultimately is it is it here now i don't know why sometimes it takes people a long time to formulate a system we could argue all day there's lots of reasons why right at certain certain times history requires the focus to be on one area of theology right like there was a certain time in church history what needed to be the focus theologically christological heresies right Heresies related to the nature of Christ. Is he of one substance with the Father or of the same substance or of a similar substance? Remember the difference in one Greek word, right? One letter, right? Okay. Um, We have that. We have issues pertaining to uh, the Trinity, the deity of Christ. Issues pertaining to uh, maybe salvation. Like different times, the focus would be on one. And when it's over here, they're not over here formulating a different system. And then as time moves forward, things happen. Now, we do know something changed dramatically in 1948. Israel showed back up on the scene, right? As a nation. Okay, well, you, you can't just ignore that. So you can see why 
Now, th these men started before 1948. Uh, I would have to look at the date. I'd have to look at the date. If you follow his uh, line, he came after Schofield. All right. If you follow their line. All right. Now, this says, in discussing the matter of the origins of dispensationalism, opponents of the teaching usually set up two straw men and then huff and puff until they are destroyed. All right. Now, let's stop right here. Whenever we have theological arguments, what does it mean to create a straw man? Whenever we have theological disputes or doctrinal disputes, what does it mean to create a straw man? Well, you, you, yeah, you build up an argument saying that this is like, okay, hey, this is what Bobby says. And it's a straw man. It's not an accurate representation. And then it's easy to knock down. Right? So, for example, if I say, man, I, I don't know if MacArthur's test there stays true to justification by an imputed righteousness. Because for that to work, I think it would, would, would require an infused righteousness. Because I don't know how you, by your actions, can prove an imputed righteousness since it's imputed. Right? That's just calling it, that's a, that's a logical, rational question. And then you get told, you're an antinomian. That's a, a straw man. That's not even an accurate representation of anything that I have ever said or will say. I've never said, kiss what? You can just do whatever you want. I've never made that comment ever under any, sir. I've never said that. But I've been accused of being an antinomian. Based off what? No, that's a straw man. Well, so then I have to defend myself for not being an antinomian when the reality is I shouldn't have to defend myself for not being an antinomian because I never made a comment saying I was. That's creating a straw man. And that diverts and that whenever people relate, whenever people go to that debate technique, end the debate and walk away. There's no point in having an argument with them because they're just creating a straw man. There's just, they're, 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 they're not having an intellectual, rational, respectful debate. That's just wrong. That's just messed up when people do that. Okay, I can't stand when, when people do that, and it, it should not occur, all right? Um, the, so the first straw man, so they, they say they set up two straw men, all right? The first is to say that dispensationalism asserts that the system was taught in post-apostolic times. Informed dispensationalists do not claim that. They say the first thing they say is that that dispensationalists claim or assert that the system was taught in post-apostolic times. Right? They say that that's what dispensationalists claim. That's a straw man. And they're like, informed dispensationalists do not claim that. Informed dispensationalists do not claim that this was a system that was taught in post-apostolic times. They recognize that as a system, dispensationalism was largely formulated by Darby, but the outlines of dispensationalist approach to the scripture are found much earlier. So dispensationalists actually claim that the ideas come much earlier than Darby. Okay? They only maintain that certain features of what eventually developed into dispensationalism are found in the teachings of the early church. All right? So another typical example of the use of a straw man is the line of argument, pre-tribulationism pre is not apostolic. Pre-dispensationalism is dispensationalism, therefore dispensationalism is not apostolic. 
that's a straw man that they, they create. All right, so let me go through that again. Predispensationalism is not apostolic. Predispensationalism is dispensationalism. Therefore, dispensationalism is not apostolic. But dispensationalism do not claim that the system was developed in the first century, nor is it necessary that they be able to do so. Many other doctrines were not developed in the early centuries, including covenant theology, which originated in the 17th century. But again, covenant theology would say, no, it didn't. It originated in Scripture. But guess what? Dispensationalists believe it originates in Scripture. And guess what? Arminians believe it originated in Scripture. And guess where Pelagians believe it originated? In Scripture. And guess where Calvinists believe it originated? In Scripture. And guess where all millennialists believe it originates? In Scripture. Everyone claims it comes from Scripture. Okay? Oh, so, uh, just, oh, all right. So, so they, they create these straw men. You don't have to understand the straw men. Just understand that they create the straw men and then try to attack it. Don't let that happen. Don't let, and, and you've got to be very careful Whenever you're in a theological dispute over, say, the history of a, of a doctrine, if you realize they're creating a straw man, don't fight. You're wasting your time. Just you're wasting your time. I, my, my attitude is: you want to be you want to be ignorant, be ignorant. I got better things to do with my life. I got better things to do because you're just ba- because now you're running over here trying to ch- you're trying to run around putting out fires that you can't put out because they're not interested in truth. They're not interested even remotely in truth which then shows that their, their, their spiritual condition, they're the ones with the problem at that point because you should care about truth. Now, he says this straw man leads to a, a second fallacy. They call it the wrong use of history. The fact that something was taught in the first century does not make it right. Does everyone hear that? The fact that something was taught in the first century does not make it right. Okay? And the fact that something was not taught until the 19th century does not make it wrong. Non-dispensationalists surely know that baptismal regeneration was taught in the early centuries. And yet many of them would not include that error in their theological system simply because it's historic. And that's true. Baptismal regeneration was clearly taught in many of the early church. Well, if you reject that, well, then that means, see, once again, it's, it's, a, it's a weird, I, I'm not even going to call it a misuse of history. It's a selective use of history. And that, uh, it, uh, we cannot do that. We cannot, we cannot have that. Oh, yeah, oh, exactly. Their entire hermeneutical system we typically reject. He says, after all, the ultimate question is not, is dispensationalism or any other teaching historic, but is it scriptural? Most opponents of dispensationalism realize that this is the issue, but they still persist in using historical arguments, which, are, which with its fallacious implications. Um, it says, and then they give, they name some books that do this, and they go through a lot of uh, understanding here. Okay, so we can, we can, we'll set all of that aside here. Now, here's what I want to at least do quickly. Oh man, we're going to run out of time. Oh, okay, all right. Let's try to see if dispensationalist ideas were at least present in the early church, right? Now, that doesn't prove that the system originated there, but were the concepts there? Because if the concepts were there, typically this is what happens if you don't know how it works in theology. Someone puts forth a concept, right? The concept starts showing up maybe in some preaching, 
and showing up here. And then sometimes those concepts take a long time until they are formulated into a system. Now, even if the concepts were present early on, doesn't make dispensationalism right. Does everybody understand that? But it may be able to prove that some of the claims about it not ever being in, in history may, be not be, may not be accurate. All right? It says, dispensationalists recognize that as a system of theology, it is recent in its origin. So most dispensationalists re- realize that as a system, as a system, it is recent in its origin. If you're a dispensationalist, you have to acknowledge that. It's recent, and it, as a system, does everyone hear the word system? Okay, all right. But there are historical references to that which eventually was systematized into dispensationalism. This, uh, there is evidence in the writings of men who lived long before Darby that the dispensational concept was a part of their viewpoint. If that is true, it would, scare, it, would be, it would scarcely be appropriate to say, as one opponent of dispensationalism does, and then they, they quote George Ladd here, it is not important for the present purpose to determine whether the views of Darby and Kelly were original with them or were taken over from their antecedents and made popular by them. Sources to solve this historical problem are not available to the present writer. For all practical purposes, we may consider that this movement for dispensationalism had had such wide influence that it must be called a movement, had its source with Darby and Kelly. In other words, what he's showing, here's a writer who says what? Well, I don't care to figure out if this stuff was there earlier. I don't care. I'm just going to tell you Darby. I don't care. I, 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 he, the, the, that writer supposedly does not have access to the history. So, well, then if you don't have access to the history, maybe you shouldn't be writing a book on, on the history of dispensationalism. Right? That's, that's a pretty novel idea, right? Okay. It says sources, th- this book says, sources are available and have been available for many years. The writing of the church fathers were translated and in print long before the author of that book was even born. Okay. The, 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 they've been in print for a long time. All right. Uh, it says, and then it says, a, a bibliography of dispensationalism was in print several years before the book he just quoted from was published. At any rate, evidence is available and shows that dispensationalism concept was held early and throughout the history of the church. All right, now I'm going to go through a bunch of names as fast as I can here, right? Just, and I'm not going to go through everything, just going to try to get us up to at least Darby or at least the, the Plymouth movement, all right? The first name is Justin Martyr, Okay. Justin Martyr. Anybody know the dates for Justin Martyr? 110 AD to 165. He held a concept referred to as the differing programs of God. The differing programs of God. All right. And here is what he said. You ready? If one should wish to ask you why, since Enoch, Noah with his sons and all others in similar circumstances, who neither were circumcised nor kept the Sabbath, pleased God, God demanded by other leaders and by giving of the law after the lapse of so many generations that those who lived between the times of Abraham and Moses be justified by circumcision and other ordinances, to wit, the Sabbath and sacrifices and libations and offerings." In other words, what he's trying to demonstrate is, wait a minute. 
how did how are these people okay if but then later these laws came into effect that you had to do this to please God so immediately what is he demonstrating a time or as he called them programs here was a program for these people and here was a program for this people what does that sound like now does that prove he was a dispensationalist absolutely not not even coming close to claiming that I'm claiming that anyone who reads the Bible are constantly confronted with this right these people did not have to do these things and then when you get to Acts then we find out that when he says when it comes to the Gentiles they don't have to get circumcised well, wait a minute. Those did. Wait, different program, different time, different something, okay? That's all you're doing is distinguishing that. Earlier in this same work, he spoke of the present dispensation and of its gifts of power. He literally used the word, the present dispensation. Why? Because dispensation simply means what? Look it up. Look up the word dispensation really quick. Just look up the word dispensation. We'll just look up the, just the English definition. Just see, let's see, just make sure we're being fair and accurate here. Okay, yeah, well, that's the Schofield definition. Yeah? Okay, all right, well. Okay, there we go. So it deals with a system or a program at a time. I mean, we're getting to the, like, the very basic, basic, basic element. What, what I want to demonstrate is that even the early, anyone who reads the Bible knows this, right? Can, can everyone at least agree with that fact? There's things different going on here that, that, wait a minute, these rules weren't in effect for these people, and then these rules seem to go away for these people, right? I mean, do, do we believe that we have to follow the sacrificial system of the Old Testament? No. Okay, well, then clearly it's a different time, right? And we can go on and on and on and on with that. All right. Irenaeus, 130 to 200, 130 to 200, wrote of reasons why there are only four Gospels. One of them is as follows, and I quote, The Gospel is quatiform, as, it also, as is also the course followed by the Lord. For this reason were four principal covenants given to the human race. One prior to the deluge, under Adam. The second, after the deluge, under Noah. The third, the giving of the law under Moses. The fourth, that which renovates man and sums up all things in itself by means of the gospel, raising and bearing man upon its wings into the heavenly kingdom. Now, he did not call these periods dispensations in this place, though he often spoke of the dispensations of God and especially of the Christian dispensation. But what did he break it down to? Four periods of time. He called them uh, covenants. Principal covenants, all right? Clement of Alexandria, 150 to 220. He distinguished three patriarchal dispensations. And Adam, Noah, and Abraham, as well as the Mosaic. So really, in some ways, he kind of gave four, but he breaks them down to three patriarchal dispensations. Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Periods of time, right? 
That was uh, Clement of Alexandria. Then Samuel Hansen, 1793 to 1880, backed up his own sevenfold dispensational scheme. So he used Clement of Alexandria, right? His kind of four, even though he says three patriarchal dispensations, he kind of creates four. He kind of bases it off that and he creates his own, which is sevenfold. Okay, Augustine also reflects these early dispensational concepts, all right? So I'm going to go through all of these, but I'm just going to skip to all of this because this is the person I think is the most important for you to remember here, all right? Um, I think I'm going to skip to this. Oh, I kind of want to go with this one, but I'm going to skip to someone from a, a French mystic and philosopher, all right? Because... This may be where we... Re- and now because he's a mystic and a philosopher, somebody would possibly criticize, but I'm just going to... I'll spell out his name for you. First name is P-I-E-R-R-E. P-I-E-R-R-E. Pierre. And the last name, P-O-I-R-E-T. First name, P-I-E-R-R-E. Last name, P-O-I-R-E-T. Okay. How would you like to say his name? Sarah knows? Paré, okay. All right. Paré, okay. All right. He wrote a book. He wrote a book in 1687. He wrote a book in 1687. All right. 1687. And it was translated into English and published in London in six volumes in 1713. All right, so it was a large book, right? Okay. Uh, It was was translated in 1713 and, and published in London in six volumes. Pare, yeah. Pierre. All right. Now, this work began as a development of the doctrine of predestination, but it was expanded into a rather complex systematic theology. So it started off about predestination, but then he kept writing and kept writing and kept writing and becomes a systematic theology. In viewpoint, it is sometimes mystical, represents a modified form of Calvinism, and it is premillennial, and dispensational. Each of the six volumes is devoted to a particular economy through his dispensational, though his dispensational scheme does not exactly follow the title of each volume, the scheme is set forth in these volumes and it is as follows. All right, you ready? Here's kind of his scheme. You don't have to write this down, just hear it. Infancy to the deluge. Childhood to Moses. Adolescence to the prophets about the time of Solomon. Youth to the coming of Christ. Manhood sometime after that. Old age, the time of man's decay, right? Seems to be the early and latter part of the Christian dispensation. And then lastly, renovation of all things, the millennium. 
Now, that's not exactly like Schofield, but what are you seeing? Dispensations, dispensations. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yep, that's seven. All right, well, a long time after, yeah. And then this is what one historian says about that, that book, those six volumes. There is no question that we have here a genuine dispensational scheme. He uses the phrase period or dispensation, and his seventh dispensation is a literal thousand-year thousand year millennial reign with Christ, return and reigning and bodily form upon the earth with all his saints, and Israel gathered and converted. I mean, that's dispensationalism, all right? Uh, it talks about the rise of the Antichrist, the two resurrections, and many of the general run of end-time events. I cannot stress to you that what you're talking a book that was first uh, published in 1687, translated into English, and published in London in 1713. That's way before we get to Schofield. That's way before we get to Darby. That's way before we get to the Plymouth Separatist Movement. That's way before we get to 1948 and Israel even being a nation. Now, that's still, but at the same time, that's a long ways. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 it's definitely after 1517. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, after 1517, what could people do? You could create your own systematic theology. Yeah. You, weren't, you didn't need a, a, a papal approval to be able to write. You didn't have, you can do whatever you want. So yeah, obviously freedom came development of systematic theology. I mean, isn't it amazing what happens when you have freedom to do things? Yeah, yeah, that, that happens. Okay. So, all right. Now there's more, there's more here I could, I could get and we could go into this. And I mean, I, I could break all of these. I mean, it goes all the way up, all the way to the, um, Right, right to Darby and all of them. And I would like to get to them. But that at least shows you that some of the concepts were present where? Early on. Does that prove anything? No, make it very clear. It doesn't prove anything. It just proves when someone creates a straw man and acts like that nobody until Darby ever thought in a dispensational way is not being fair and not being accurate. And once again, that just ticks me off because it's a misuse of church history. And I get tired of people doing it. I get, I get so tired of that. Because most of the people who want to argue, and when I look at them and say, have you read the church fathers? They all say, no. Well, then stop arguing with me is what I want to say, okay? I want to lose my mind, right? Go away. Just go away. Because if you're not going to do the work, then we're not going to have the conversation. Because, but they'll hop on Google, do a search, pull up an article and say, you're wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I read the same article that you found, okay? Congratulations, okay? That doesn't prove anything. Let's do the work, all right? So let's wrap this up. I would like to go into more of that history because I got right here, uh, John Nelson Darby, 1800-1882, the Brethren Movement, the Bible Conference Movement beginning in the 1870s, the Bible Institute Movement in the late 1800s, the Schofield Reference Bible, Dallas Theological Seminary. That's kind of like a, a track through more modern history, all right? So you have John Nelson Darby, if you want, just want like the modern history, John Nelson Darby, the Brethren Movement, the Bible Conference Movement, and which Bible Conference? 
the Niagara Conference. Remember, we talked about that, right? The Niagara Conference, the Niagara Conference. Cannot stress the importance of that. The Bible Institute movement, all right? You can blame Boston for that because they had the Boston Missionary Training School in 1889. They're all responsible, so blame Boston, okay? All right, Schofield Reference Bible, okay? And guess where? Uh, guess what Schofield, where he participated in? The Niagara Conference. The only conference you need to know is the Niagara Conference, right? That's why we studied the Niagara Creed, remember? Okay, right? And then Dallas Theological Seminary. And who who is that Dallas Theological Seminary? Lewis, Sperry, Schaefer, right? Okay, you've got to know those names. That's kind of, that gets you from the modern times. It's C-H... A-F-E-R, I think is how it's spelled. Chafer, right? Okay, yeah, I apologize. That's a large something coming that way. Okay, all right. Yeah, it is, okay. All right, okay, I don't know. Okay, it's just a beetle, okay. All right, okay. All right, for those listening online, yes, there's a large beetle walking across the sanctuary currently. Okay, not the beetles, but a beetle. Okay, right. All right, now, here we go. Schaefer would have been, let me see here if I have dates, uh, 1924, somewhere like after that, 1920-something, 2030s, somewhere in there, okay? All right, now, here are, I'm going to give you the six tenets of dispensationalism. You ready? The six tenets of dispensationalism. All right, number one, progressive revelation from the New Testament does not interpret or reinterpret Old Testament passages in a way that changes or cancels the original meaning of the Old Testament writers as determined by the historical grammatical hermeneutic. I know that's a long statement, but let me go through it again. All right. Progressive revelation, there's no way to summarize this. Progressive revelation from the New Testament does not interpret or reinterpret Old Testament passages in a way, okay, I was trying to go quick. We may have to come back and do these on Wednesday, okay? I was, I was trying to finish it, but okay. No, that's, I, that, that's fine. Well, here, let me do this. Let me just go through them, and then Wednesday we'll go, we'll, 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 we'll kind of, we'll try to work through these. Is that, is that fair? Are you okay with that? All right, all right, here we go. I'm going to go quickly, and I'll try not to teach each one of these, okay? Here we go. So number one, progressive revelation from the New Testament does not interpret or reinterpret Old Testament passages in a way that changes or cancels the original meaning of the Old Testament writers as determined by historical grammatical hermeneutics. Meaning this, when you get to the, 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 bio, the dispensationalism understands progressive revelation. What is progressive revelation? That something is revealed that wasn't revealed earlier. They're like, when you get to the New Testament and you get some new revelation or some new progressive revelation, maybe like the church or whatever, it does not cancel out the original passages and how they would be understood in the historical grammatical hermeneutic, meaning you would take them in a literal way. You don't go back and go, well, because I got this in the New Testament, I can just cancel out the literal meaning. They're saying dispensationalism says you can't do that. Okay, does that make sense? Right. Right, well, 
it, it applies, but it's, it's like what, what happens is people get to the New Testament, will see something, and they'll change the original meaning. All right? Does that, you can't change the original meaning. Right? Like if, if, the, if Jeremiah says the covenant was made with Israel, then it's with Israel. Okay? You don't change it because in the New Right? Does that make sense? Right? That's, a, that's a good, a decent example. Number two, types exist, but national Israel is not a type that is superseded by the church. They acknowledge types exist, but Israel is not a type that is superseded by the church. Right? Everybody got that? Number three, the church and Israel are distinct. Thus, the church cannot be identified as the new or true Israel. This is like, this is like, do you want dispensationalism 101? Here are the elements of dispensationalism 101. Number four, this is both spiritual unity, the, 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 well, it's written weird. All right. There is both spiritual unity and salvation between Jew and Gentile and a future role for Israel as a nation. All right. There is a unity in salvation. Jew and Gentile are what? One in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. Now, immediately someone will quote that. And then guess what they then do with that? Well, then there's no God's done with Israel. And they're like, no, there's, a, there's, there's perfect unity in that. We are one in Christ, but there's a future for the nation of Israel because there were promises made specifically to the nation of Israel. That, that's a simple one to understand, all right? Everybody understand that? Number five, the nation Israel will be both saved and restored with a unique identity and function in a future millennial kingdom upon the earth. The nation of Israel will be saved and be restored, have a specific identity as a nation, and they will be there in the millennial kingdom because that's where the promises have to be fulfilled. Now again, any other system is going to argue against that. To me, this is where dispensationalism Like all the other elements of dispensationalism, you can argue all day. These are the key points that I think really distinguishes it. And But make sure you understand, this can become your hermeneutic. You can't allow this to be your hermeneutic. What you have to do is read the Bible and go, well, wait a minute. Did God make promises to Israel? Yes. Okay. Do we think that God took those promises from them and gave them to the church? That, 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 now, once you, once you, you have to figure that out from the text. Now, once you step back from that, then you can go, well, I just don't see where it can happen. And then dispensationalism comes along and say, well, here's our approach to it. And then you can say whether you agree or disagree. But it's supposed to come from the text. All right, and then number six, there are multiple senses of the seed of Abraham. All right? There are multiple senses of the seed of Abraham. Thus, the church's identification as seed of Abraham does not cancel God's promise to the believing Jewish seed of Abraham. In other words, if you say the church is the seed of Abraham, that does not remove Israel from being the seed of Abraham because there were specific promises made to Israel. So they're saying there's different senses to the seed of Abraham. Now, one could argue that from a hermeneutical standpoint and see if that actually holds water, right? That one may be a little bit more difficult to prove. But those are the six basic tenets of dispensationalism. Simply put, dispensationalism really is a system that tries to make a distinction between what two things? The church and Israel. 
while acknowledging that there's been God has worked in different ways at different times. So the emphasis is there was a time God's work and focus was on whom? Israel. Then there was a time that the focus was on whom? Gentiles. And there will be a time go back to Israel. And that's the, all, the argument. And they say that the Bible proves this out because of all the times where there are these different times where there's different focuses and where things are different. Were things different before the fall and after the fall? Were things different between after the law came into effect, before the law? Very different, right? And then after the law, there's all these rules and regulations and things that, they're doing that wasn't there prior to, right? And then, then there, things are a little bit different under captivity, are they not? Okay, then when they come back into the land, the next thing you know, Jesus is there. That's obviously radically different than at any other time, right? And then he's crucified, died, buried, raised, ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then now you have Gentiles coming in. And even the people in the Bible realize this time is different because they're like, what do we do with the Gentiles? And then magically, they did not deal with the Gentiles and make them follow what? The law, immediately meaning that they had to recognize something was different. But then we're still going, well, wait a minute, there's all these promises that weren't fulfilled. Where do we fit them in? And we don't, they only, there's only one place. Meaning that then that time, the millennial kingdom, if we believe in a literal millennium, has to be different than any other time. Because once Satan would be bound, that's got to be different than it is now. Christ is reigning, that would be different. So they're just saying that these different times, we, so we, we technically don't really need to go back over those because you just got the basic gist of them, okay? You really got the basic gist. You don't really need, need a more... You, you, we can summarize all of them to simply say what? New Testament does not cancel out the original meaning of the Old Testament. And that's number one. And then two through six is... Israel and the church are different. The end. Okay, that, you can summarize the six into two points. New, the, listen, New Testament does not cancel out the original understanding of the Old Testament. And that Israel and the church are different. The end. That's pretty simple and pretty straightforward. All right? But I want you to realize that the timing of a system does not determine the truthfulness of a system. And that it's a straw man and it's not accurate to say dispensational ideas were not present early on because they were, right? We clearly have almost full-blown dispensationalism there in, what, 1700, right? Starting in 1600. So, and then well, we, we see Darby, we see the Bible Institute movement, we see all of those movements. And then we know Schofield and, and Dallas Theological Seminary makes it mainstream. Now, did people take dispensational ideas and continue to build on them and expand on them and may do things with it that was guilt? Look, Always remember this, an abuse of an idea does not negate the truthfulness of an idea. Eternal security of the believer. Have people abused said doctrine? Does not negate it. We are saved by an imputed righteousness. Someone may abuse that. Does that not negate that truth? Abuse does not negate the truth. What you don't condemn is the doctrine. You condemn the abuse of it. It's that simple. But people will always point out to the abuse of it as a way to negate the truthfulness of it, and that's not an accurate way to handle it. All right. That was fast. That was quick. All right. Any questions? We did halfway okay? All right. 
I think, I think we did pretty good. I think we did pretty good. Please note, there's a lot more we could cover, but I think we did pretty good. Now, our focus then from this point forward will be on the tabernacle, all right? And this morning, we started establishing typology, right? We started t- establishing typology. So we will proceed on with that, and then we will see where we go and how we move forward, because we're going to take a long way through all that. We looked at all the reasons and all of that, so... All right, we'll stop. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, thank you for giving us a a place where we can look at some of these very important critical issues related to church history. Lord, forgive us for our misuse of church history, our abuse of church history, and our misuse and abuse of theological ideas. Forgive us when we've created straw men and tried to knock them down to make ourselves look more right. And most importantly, Lord, if we believe your word is the final authority, Forgive all of us when we've made ourselves the final authority. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said...